Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everyone. My name is Luke. If I haven't met you, uh, whoa, is that all right? It's good to be with you today as we come to this third uh, in our in our short uh, series, holiday series, Inside Out, as the as we talk about the gospel and Christian emotions, particularly how uh, we are called uh, to change from inside out and the way that the gospel changes us. Uh, my hope is that we are going to return to this uh, series again in the future, maybe at other times in other uh, holiday series, we'll look at some other uh, emotions uh, in the future. But before we go any further, let me pray as we come before this part of God's word. Father, as we now come to really consider uh, this uh, experience of disgust, uh, particularly from the pages of Scripture, we ask that you'll be stealing our hearts and minds and humbling us, challenging us where we need to be challenged and comforting us where we need to be comforted. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, uh, the title of this series was based on the Pixar movie uh, you might have seen, Inside Out. Uh, and I think uh, this emotion that we're looking at today is disgust. And I think we've got a picture of disgust. There you go. Apparently, disgust was the highest selling piece of merchandise uh, when the movie came out. I know we've got a disgust doll somewhere uh, at our house. Uh, the common dictionary definition of disgust is a feeling of revulsion or strong disapproval aroused by something unpleasant or offensive. And as Daz was so helpfully illustrating, it's typically associated with food and our senses. Uh, and in the, ma in the movie, uh, the Pixar movie, the character uh, discussed... Uh, the, the main character in the movie, the girl who has the different emotions that are uh, depicted throughout, she, she's disgusted by broccoli, right? Now... Interestingly enough, when that movie uh, was released, they had to change the piece of food for the different international audiences because not everyone around the world, not every child around the world, can you believe it, is disgusted by broccoli. Wouldn't that be a great place to live? No, some, apparently some places in the world that for kids, broccoli is beautiful and other things are disgusting, so they actually had to change it culturally and that's the thing about our taste, isn't it? It can change with culture. Things like Vegemite. Americans can't understand why we could like Vegemite and other people can't understand why other places can have food that's so spicy. Apparently, evolutionary biologists will argue that our experience of disgust is a survival mechanism uh, to help us uh, stay away from things that are harmful for us, things like blood, decay, mould, all those kind of things, lack of hygiene... But what we're going to do today is I don't really want to focus on that kind of disgust, uh, the one that really is all about our senses. I'd like us to focus on a related experience that are often quite closely connected, and that's a kind of a moral disgust. Now, you might notice, see that picture there? It's interesting. The character disgust is presented as a character who is kind of like above everyone else, turns her nose up of everyone else. Everything else is gross, right? Now, sometimes our everyday experience of disgust, like, you know, hating broccoli, can turn into kind of a moral disgust when you think everybody who hates broccoli, who likes broccoli is inferior to you. You know, there are people who, for some reason, who uh, 
who, who will never drink instant coffee, and anyone who drinks instant coffee is somehow morally inferior. I don't know any of those people. Peter Rappler? No, sorry. But you know what I mean? There's the, there's the distinction between taste and then that moral superiority. I'm hoping that we can distinguish between those kind of things, but what we're talking about today particularly is those behaviours and attitudes that cause you to feel something like the experience of disgust about the behaviours or attitudes of others. As Christians, what are we to make of these? How does the gospel of Jesus change the way we experience and understand the experience of disgust? So let me start with a bunch of real quotes that I paraphrase that I've heard over the years from people in, uh, in my church experience uh, who have had negative experiences of a church or a Christian community. Here are a bunch of quotes. So I want you to, as you hear them, I felt so judged because I was the only one who likes to get drunk on the weekend. Right? That was a, a quote, someone felt disappointed about their time amongst Christians because they felt really judged. Next one, I felt so judged because I had had an affair. I felt so judged because I have a baby and I'm not married. I felt so judged because I was the only one swearing. I felt so judged because I was the only one who had experimented with drugs. Right. Now, as a Christian... What do we make of these quotes? Now, if you're anything like me, you want to hold one of two, both of two things together. You dearly wish that that person or those people who have said those quotes would have started with, I felt so loved, wouldn't you? Not, I felt so judged. You really, really wish that they'd say, I felt so loved. But you also don't want to celebrate all those things as good, do you? You don't want to celebrate all those things, particularly when there have been damaged third parties and other victims that have resulted in those behaviours. So for some people who come into Christian communities, their experience of Christians, rightly or wrongly, can be a little bit like the speak-to-the-hand experience of disgust, someone who's just looking down on them, saying, you know, you don't belong here. Now, I want us to briefly walk through a series of questions uh, to offer us a framework to think about this experience of disgust in light of the gospel of Jesus. So, here's the, here's the question. Some of them might feel quite basic and some of them might be quite profound, but I think they're helpful for us to navigate this area. First of all, the first question is, do you know where the line between good and evil is? And you might be knowing where this is going, the Russian a writer and historian, I can never say his surname correctly, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, <laughs> too many uh, consonants about famously wrote this, the line between good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. So awareness of this line, where the line is between the good and the disgusting, the good and the evil goes right through every human heart. And that is actually the difference, I think, between how the Pharisee understands good and evil and how the tax collector in the parable that was read out earlier from Luke 18. Remember those words? There was two men who went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, 
or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get. That the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you that this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see that difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee was delighted in himself, but disgusted in the sin of others. The tax collector was disgusted in himself and his sin, and not even aware of the sin of others. The right starting point for us on this topic, particularly, is looking at ourselves looking where the line between good and evil is, in the middle of the human heart, where we stand with God, a right starting point is for us to feel disgusted with our actions before God, our offence before God, and not focusing on the offence of others. That is, our starting point is the question of good and evil is not us versus them, a matter of every human heart. The second question for us to think about, do you know the despised servant? So if you're real with your sin, if we're real with our sin, if we are indeed genuinely offended and disgusted by it, as we think about who we are before God, what we have done, God doesn't want to leave us there. You notice how in the story, in the parable of the tax collector, Jesus doesn't simply point out that the the tax collector is to be commended for his humility just because by virtue of, well, that, that's, that's great for him to be aware of his sin and be disgusted at his sin. He's actually saying that it's the starting point, it's the ter- starting point to walking away from that place right with God and being lifted up and exalted. That's the end. So, so you've got the disgusted sin in himself leads to being lifted up and exalted. And so, if we're here today, there might be some of us prone more to be like the Pharisees, maybe spending a lot of energy disgusted at the sin of others, and we need to hear the challenge from Jesus of humility and looking inwards at our own sin and the evil that runs right through your hearts. So you are shocked before God, at at, at yourself before God, not shocked at others. But there might be others here as well who might be paralysed by self-loathing, disgusted in yourself for all kinds of reasons, feeling that you're not good enough. You might hate something about yourself, many things about yourself, about your past, about your present. For you, you need to hear that self-disgust or even disgust about yourself before God is not where God wants to leave you. He wants to lift you up. He wants you to cast your burdens, your inadequacies, your offences, your sins, cast them on his son, the despised servant, the one who knew no sin but carried it on himself to bear the punishment that like the tax collector we know we deserve and like the tax collector we know we can't pay, those magnificent words from Isaiah 53 describing Jesus, prophesying Jesus as the most despised, rejected person in human history, the person where everyone eventually would turn their noses up at him. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. 
He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. He bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. We, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we're healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished us. No, he's punished him for the iniquity of us all. Do you know the despised servant? God doesn't want to leave us feeling disgusted at ourselves, but to cast our disgust at ourselves, our sin, our offences on his son. Third question. Do you know the difference between your past, present and future? So when someone gives their life to Jesus, it is no small thing. Our story, our life story, their life story when they give their life to Jesus has changed. might not feel like it's changed straight away, but it has changed dramatically. And so we should expect our lives to look different to our past. Listen, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes, uh, Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, so you've got that, the despised servant... Equip yourselves also with the same result because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behaviour, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and lawless idolatry. You notice that that seems to be some of that kind of I felt judged because I'm dot, dot, dot kind of language, doesn't it? The important thing we need to see here in terms of how we are to think about the added, our attitudes to all those kind of behaviours, the drunkenness, the all those kind of things, is that Peter describes this not just as those people out there. This is our past. This is our... Fra- We're not rejecting other people that we are better than. We are rejecting our past. And we can see our past in all different kinds of manifestations in the world today. Our past. Do you know that's your past? Our present. Our present is being transformed, isn't it? To the perfect future of Christ's likeness. That's the third question. Do you know the difference between your past? your present and your future. Fourth question. As a Christian, do you know how others will then think of you? It's a very hard, I think, when people do speak of Christian communities being judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous, like the quotes that I mentioned earlier. The natural reaction, I think, rightly, is to deeply wish... (laughs) that we were perceived as being a loving and accepting community. But it's actually not that simple. (laughs) Because sometimes somebody's negative experience of the Christian community can be due to pharisaical, self-righteous attitudes of church members obsessing on pointing out the flaws of others, puffing themselves up with no humility, no focus on themselves... 
And whenever we see these practices at St Mark's, we should and rightly should be alarmed and deal with them. But at other times, it might not actually have anything to do with an unloving Christian community. It might not be anything to do with something that a Christian community did or said, but simply that the Christian community was repulsive because the heart had not yet been transformed by the love of Jesus. See those verses in the end of verse uh, of 1 Peter 4, verse 4. So they are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living and they slander you. The expectation is that those who follow Jesus will be slandered not just for the name of Jesus, but for what you choose to do and what you choose not to do. Why is that? Well, if we, there's a logic to it that we can easily forget, and I forget very easily. If we follow and we worship the one who is described in Isaiah 53 as despised and rejected by men, someone people turned away from, he was despised and we didn't value him, if we're following in his footsteps, why on earth should we accept, expect that we would be treated any differently, that we would somehow be accepted and loved by men, that people would, you know, value us? If we are following it, shouldn't we be, we shouldn't be surprised if we're treated the same way that Jesus was treated. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, to some... We are the aroma of death, leading to death. But to others, an aroma of life, leading to life. So in our right desire to love everyone, our neighbours and our enemies, in Christ-like sacrificial love, we must not confuse this goal with being loved by everyone. You see the difference to some, the gospel of Jesus and the outworkings of that gospel will be like the stench of death. Not just neutral, the stench of death, offensive, not a beautiful fragrance of life. Well, there are four questions as we navigate that experience of disgust. There's a lot more to say. What I'd like to do just as we wrap up this time today is just draw together a number of implications just for us to ponder as we think about this kind of, we don't really, I don't think of, not really many sermons on disgust, it might be the last sermon you ever hear on disgust, it's not the most usual uh, sermon you hear, but Pixar's just determining our preaching schedule, so there you go. <laughs> but here's some implications, right? First one, a concern, be concerned with your own sin first, Pray to be, let's quote unquote, disgusted by the presence of sin in your own life. Pray that you will be allergic to it, repulsed by it. Point one. Second, don't leave it there. Carry your disgust with your sin to the cross, to the despised suffering servant. And let him take it. And let him lift you up, like the tax collectors lifted up. Third, disgust with our own sin 
leads us to a desire to love and not judge others. For we too know we are by nature deserving of judgment and wrath. Fourth, the problem of sin is very real. It was so serious and is so serious and so offensive to God that it cost him the death of his own son. Any attempt to trivialise it, celebrate it, affirm it, massively, massively blasphemes what God has done for us on the cross. Be very careful with confusing the call to love others with being loved by everyone. This leads to the downplaying the seriousness of sin and ultimately refuses salvation and the offer of salvation. A fifth and finally, I think it's the fifth one. When it comes to our relationship with others, let us strive to be known first and foremost with a concern that people know the cure far much more than they know our diagnosis. Not saying the diagnosis is not important, of course, but let us be known, if people walk away from our community, you say, gee, that's a marked community. They're a little bit obsessed with Jesus, right? <laughs> I just, I mean, you know. Now, we can't avoid how people will feel and there'll be, there'll be aroma of life and stench of death, but let us strive because of where we are and who we are, knowing that the line between good and evil goes right between the centre of every human heart. Let us be known as people passionate about the cure, obsessed about Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you have not left us where we deserve, that you have indeed sent your son, the despised servant, the one who so many turned their nose up at, was rejected, who lived the sinless life, who took on himself all our iniquities, all our sins. And Father, we ask that you will help us this week to not pass over the seriousness of our sin, but to wrestle with it, but to also not be left there paralysed by it. Help us to be lifted up, not in self-righteousness, but in the righteousness that you give to us in your Son. And help us to be a community that doesn't flinch by holding out this life, the salvation that we know and love in your son. Help us not to put being loved by everyone as our top priority. Help us to be people who are confident and convicted that the greatest need in all of us in this world is to know the salvation that comes in your son. We ask that we'll be known for people who are obsessed with Jesus, first and foremost. We ask this in his name. Amen.